Chapter Eleven of *The Hawk of Egypt* by Joan Conquest, read for LibriVox.org into the public domain. Chapter Eleven, give me that man is not a passion's slave, and I will wear him in my heart's core. Shakespeare. In his blindness and obstinacy and hurt, Ben Kelham carried out his intention and went after Lyon, the report of which, for all he knew, might have been the outcome of some fellow's vision of a tame pussy mixed up with the nocturnal habits of the lion-headed goddess Seket, who, so tradition avers, prowls about ruins by the light of the moon, seeking whom she may devour. The moon plays havoc with the strongest-minded out yonder. Anyway, lovesick, he left Heliopolis, placing the panacea of sport like a poultice upon his hurt. Shortly after, one day, during the noon hours, in the cool shadows of his great palace in Cairo, there came to Hugh Carden Ali an overpowering desire to see the girl he loved amongst her own people. She was his at dawn in the desert, although miles of sand stretched between them, his in the rush of the wind, the glory of the sky, and the thunder of the horse's hoofs. But to whom did she turn at night, in the maze of the dance, the hot-house atmosphere of the hotel, the crush of the winter visitors? So, giving a twist to the dagger of love in his heart, he tucked the dogs of Beely in beside him, and drove as the sun set to Heliopolis, and, guessing that the Duchess would have a table near the window, chose one on the opposite side of the dining-room, so that his presence should not be thrust upon the girl, or the old woman, who had known his mother. He sat there, indifferent to or oblivious of the interest his presence aroused, unconsciously counting the vertebrae of the lady at the next table, who had evidently forgotten some essential part of her bodice. He counted the vertebrae in the back of the lady who was dying to turn round, until the Duchess and Damaris entered the room. Then he clenched his hands under the table with an involuntary shudder of disgust. It was the first time that he had seen the girl he loved in evening dress, and every instinct of the Oriental in him was outraged at the sight of the gleaming neck and shoulders, and hint of lace-shrouded virgin form. She was not in full décolletage by any means, but the waiter's sleeve was but an inch from her satin skin when he bent over her, so that although he had long grown accustomed in Europe to the undraping of woman a nights, yet because he loved the beautiful girl, he longed for the right to walk across the room, pick her up in his arms, and smothering her in a barku, hide her forever from all male eyes but his own. Later, as he sat alone in a far corner of the ballroom, he twisted the dagger of love this way and that in his tormented heart, whilst the dogs of Beely worried the life out of the hall-porter as they fretted and moaned for their master who tarried. He never danced, himself, loathing the idea of the propinquity of a stranger's body so close to his own, of a stranger's mouth so near his own, of the animal odour of the naked body, which no perfume can hide, within his nostrils, just as he loathed the idea of a woman passing from one man's arms to another's throughout the best part of a night. He had no desire whatever to dance with Damaris, but all the Eastern in him longed to make her dance for him, in the desert for preference, under the light of the moon, with the insistent throbbing of the drum keeping time to the rhythm of slender feet upon the warm sand. And he sat and dreamed under the palms, taking no heed of the sudden cessation of music, the gathering of the dancers against the walls, the half-suppressed laughter and moistening of lip with furtive tongue, and the unusual feeling of expectancy in the heavy, perfumed air. But he came back to earth when, from some corner of the room, there came the faint tapping of a drum. 
Three times there fell a single beat, then a gentle roll and a single beat, bringing him to his feet as he recognized the measure, just as the lights were switched off, excepting for one great beam which, striking down from some device in the ceiling, made a silvery pool in the middle of the floor. "'No!' he cried from the shadows. "'This must not be. It is not seemly for the eyes of women.' But the answer to this protest came in little jeering laughs and quick remonstrances from those who feared that the wetting of their appetites should be snatched from them, and a sigh of satisfaction went up when, from the shadows, there sprang an Arabian youth, beautiful as a god, supple as a snake, quick upon his feet as any fighting stallion. He stood for a second with arms outflung to the men and women he knew were watching his every movement outside the radius of the light and then he sprang back with that marvellous leap which is the gift of some Arabian male dancers. Ah, me! You talk in pharisaic whispers of the notch-girl, in righteous anger against the dainty geisha, in horror of the weaving salomes, as known in western cities. Wait, however, before you pour the last drop from your vials of wrath and indignation, until you have seen an Arab dance al-fajr, which, being translated, means the dawn. You can put what interpretation you like upon it, the dawn of day, or love, anything will do, but you most certainly ought not to watch it. If, however, you persist in so doing, you should blush to the roots of your hair. You will not, because it will be the perfect poetry of motion you will be witnessing. Also ought you, after the third movement, to turn your back or flee the room. You will not, again, because of the mocking sensuality, which will keep you rooted where you stand. You ought to stuff your ears against the throbbing of the drum, but that you will not do because of the words of love which fall, seemingly reft from the dancer's lips in the rapture of his movements. It is the last word in sensual ecstasy, and should be prohibited for public exhibition to Europeans, yet it is quite impossible to point at any one movement and label it as the cause of the tumult within you. But Hugh Cardin Ali, standing under a palm, turned quickly when a little sound of distress caught his ear, and put out his hand and pulled the girl he had recognized in the dark by her perfume towards him, so that the back of her head rested against his arm, and sensing her nausea at the sight from which she had been trying to fly, and knowing the sheer impossibility of keeping the eyes shut in a theatre, he pulled his handkerchief from his sleeve and placed it across her eyes. Save for the back of her head resting just below his shoulder, he did not touch her, and if he bent his head so that the perfumed riot of her curl swept his cheek, should it count as a grievous sin against him? The stone beside each of us is quite likely to lie untouched throughout our span of threescore plus ten. At the last beat of the drum, and just before the lights were switched on, Damaris was alone, with a silken handkerchief in her hand, in one corner of which, as she discovered later, was embroidered the hawk of old Egypt. End of chapter 11. Read by Sibella Denton. For more information, please visit LibriVox.org.